Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect Workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation, and instructions will be given at the time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchstone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Masner, Senior Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Grace, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's workshop, What's New in Precision Medicine? Really important topic for you to really hear so much about today uh, from experts. Um, and you will have a chance at the end of the program to ask questions as well. Um, and today's program is supported by Bristol-Myers Squibb, and I really want to thank them for their support of this program. And we have many of you on the call today. There's over 167 participants on the call today. And you come from all of the United States, from both urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities. And we also have international participants today from Canada, Lithuania, Philippines, Taiwan, and the United Kingdom. So it's really a global call as well. And it's credit to each of you that you've chosen to spend this next hour with us. You are clearly a group of information seekers. And now it's my pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Michael Morrow. Dr. Morrow is leader of Myeloproliferative Neoplasms Program, member of Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, Professor Weill Cornell Medicine. And, and Dr. Morrow will be addressing understanding precision medicine, overview and value of precision medicine, how precision medicine is different from targeted treatments, and the role of precision medicine in deciding the treatment for leukemia. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Morrow. Well, <clears throat> thank you, Carolyn, and uh, thank you, everyone, for uh, joining the call. And this is a great topic, very timely, and uh, very much the way um, we view cancer treatment today. Um, so, you know, I think my job was to open up the discussion by breaking down what we mean by precision medicine or, or, and, and precision medicine and targeted treatments. I think if we think back to cancer treatment and, and chemotherapy, even that term chemotherapy is hard because um, all treatments for cancer, I think, would fall under the, under the umbrella of chemotherapy because it's a medication, a chemical, a, a, a drug of some kind which is designed to treat cancer. But we have a long history, uh, thank goodness, uh, and, and a lot of progress in cancer treatment, and, and we've moved out of an era of what we might call traditional chemotherapy into a novel era. Now, so traditional chemotherapy, if we think way back, unfortunately was not precise, not targeted very much, although it, it actually was targeted in certain ways. If you think back to, for example, some of the earliest treatments in leukemia were taking advantage of the, the speed at which the growth, the growth of cells occurred or the fact that they needed certain vitamins or minerals or things to, uh, to, to survive and other cells could um, survive without them to a degree or, or, or at least withstand um, medications or treatments. And some of the very earliest treatments were medications given that were strong and had a lot of side effects and would have, unfortunately, a lot of effects on healthy cells and healthy tissue, but essentially hurt the cancer cells more or took advantage of something that was different about the cancer cells. So they were targeted in a way, but not clearly the way we are now, uh, understood now. The field of oncology clearly uh, changed, and the characterization of cancer cells and tumors has 
expanded dramatically. Probably the biggest advance has been genetic sequencing or, or essentially unraveling of the human genome. You know, decades ago, we, no, no one would have imagined that we'd have the ability to easily do genetic sequencing on cells, tumor cells, even just DNA that's not even in a cell, that's in the blood or in a, in, 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 in a sample in order to understand what's different about it compared to a normal cell. But that really has changed the way we can treat cancer. So precision medicine and targeted therapy, I think, are really one and the same. I, I, I do, um, not, I'm not sure if we could separate the two because um, a targeted therapy is really just a much, much better way than what I described earlier of treating cancer, that it's trying to interfere with a target or a feature of a cancer cell. It could be at the genetic level, at the cell level, uh, even at other different levels. Um, it may attach itself. It may block something that's happening in the cell. Um, and by stopping something that's working, by targeting something that the cell needs or does, it can slow the growth or stop a cancer. Um, precision medicine is the way we sort out how um, we can use and harness targeted therapy. So precision medicine is the, the, uh, the inquiry that hopefully happens early so we can characterize cancers quickly and understand what makes them tick. Um, that can be, again, done in many different ways. Uh, genetic testing is probably the most useful, although there are many tests which um, can be used uh, to characterize and use precision medicine. It can be by looking at a tumor sample and just looking under the microscope, um, the features of the cells. It can be the way they um, have developed and what do they have on their surface um, by something called immunohistochemistry, where we're tagging something on the surface of a cell. Does it have a receptor in breast cancer? Does it have a, a molecule on its surface? We don't have to necessarily know a lot more about it, but we can just see that it, it's a, the cancer cell is um, kind of showing its colors, bearing something, relying on something, or has a feature, that might be a target. Down at the genetic level is much more complicated, and now we're looking at the, the ability to say what, if this is a bomb, and I hate to use that analogy because I, I'm, not a, I'm, a, I'm a nonviolent person, but if we think of a cancer cell as sort of a bomb, how can we diffuse it? Which wire do we need to cut? And we can get down to that level of, of precision um, to understand it's this gene that's been turned on or it's this protein that's overexpressed or it's this marker on the surface of a cancer cell that's different. Let me turn now and use the example of leukemia as a way to understand a little bit better, which is part of my, the, the additional topic I was asked to cover. Acute leukemia, uh, and I'll put a large umbrella, acute myeloid and lymphoid leukemia is not, not the same, clearly different, but uh, if we use um, myeloid leukemia as an example, when I was in my training, we would look at acute myeloid leukemia based on what, is the, what kind of cells were abnormal um, and how would we classify them. And there were seven different categories. We also could look at the genetics um, in, a, in a more basic way, the cytogenetics, looking at the chromosomes, the 46 human chromosomes and saying, are there deletions or insertions or exchanges uh, called translocations? Some of them were very helpful. Uh, there was a type of acute myeloid leukemia. If it had a certain translocation, it was exquisitely sensitive to chemotherapy. It had more complications during treatment, but it was, it was much more curable. It was called acute promyelocytic leukemia. That was really the first example where we developed an, essentially a drug that wasn't so much a chemotherapy. It was more of a targeted drug because it was harnessing exactly what that genetic, that simple chromosome translocation, what that did, what that led to in the cell. Okay, fast forward. Acute leukemia in 2020. 
we don't necessarily rely so much on what it looks like and what basket of seven different cell types it, it looks like under the microscope. We do still rely on genetics and chromosome abnormalities, but now we look at it at the genetic level and say, um, does it overexpress something that's causing the cells to grow very fast? And an example of that is something called a, 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 a FLT3, uh, which is a kinase. Uh, kinase is an enzyme, and if it's if it's essentially activated or uh, unchained from its regulation, it can cause leukemia cells to grow very quickly. And it's, these are all acronyms. So FLT3 is FIMS like tyrosine kinase 3. So it's a lot of, a lot of jargon, um, but we understand it. And, and that's a, that was a huge breakthrough. By identifying leukemias that had this FLT3 abnormality, we developed a targeted therapy, uh, precision medicine through precision medicine. One of the first drugs was called mitostorin. That was shown to be better than just chemotherapy and in combination really offered a huge advantage for patients and was one of the first combination targeted therapies approved in AML. Since then, now the floodgates are open. Now we have multiple drugs in this class, gilteridinib, quizartinib, quinolinib. They all sound the same. They all are um, aiming at the same target. They're getting better. It's sort of 2.0, 3.0 versions. They're being studied with different forms of ke traditional chemotherapy. So you see now we have the marriage between targeted therapy and traditional chemotherapy. Another great advance in AML was a drug called um, that targeted something in the basic metabolism of the cell, something called IDH. Uh, so that was not expected, but a, a small defect in a, in a, a normal cellular process, kind of like the, you know, the digestion, respirations, if you will, sort of the basic um, nuts and bolts of cells, led to um, defect that caused a buildup of something that, that essentially fostered leukemia. And by targeting that with us, you know, with oral medications, which are relatively safe, we have another breakthrough in AML. So you can see how things have evolved. We've gone from a very simple way of looking at um, uh, cancers to a very complex way. These tools are very powerful. I don't even know if I, we say we know exactly everything we're looking at. We're certainly looking at a lot, but we continue to put piece it together. Um, it, there are other cancers which are treated slightly, the leukemias, for example, that are treated um, because of their target, because they're basically a, um, a, a, what we view as sort of a, a, a single-themed cancer. The leukemia I look after the most called chronic myeloleukemia is just like that. That leukemia is basically driven by one genetic translocation, which causes one cellular enzyme called a kinase, BCR-ABLE, to be unchained from its normal regulation and that causes leukemia cells to grow and keeps them alive. And that was probably one of the earlier and, and successful and sort of leading stories on how we could develop target therapy. We don't have one, two, three, four, we have six approved drugs um, that target that one nasty enzyme that's turned on that causes CML. And they, they differ in that they can overcome changes that the leukemia cell can try to put as a defense mechanism by generate, by essentially a, a cell with a mutation can survive because now the, the switch or the target looks a little bit different so the drug might not work as well. So, so we've even been able to sort of outsmart the cancer in that way. So I'm hoping this introduction was helpful. Leukemia has changed dramatically, especially AML. Um, CLL as well with targeted therapies targeting the uh, different pathways that are active. We have non-chemotherapy induction regimens or non-chemotherapy regimens for leukemias like ALL. And we have a great story with the, the leukemia that I look after a lot called CML. And thank you for your attention, and I'll turn it back to Carolyn. Oh, thank you, Dr. Morrow. That was an outstanding presentation. Really beautifully set the stage for today's program, I have to say. Um, and I know there'll be 
questions for you during the Q&A. So again, thank you for just a stellar presentation. Thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Kamal Abu Hussein. And Dr. Hussein is Assistant Professor of Medicine, Cooper Medical School, Rowan University, Lead Physician, Breast Medical Oncology, MD Anderson Cancer Center at Cooper. And Dr. Hussein will be addressing how precision medicine contributes to treatment options and quality of life, the role of precision medicine in deciding the treatment for breast cancer, and the increasing role of telehealth and telemedicine appointments. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Hussein. Thank you so much, Dr. Mesner. Um, so my job is uh, made easy, especially after the excellent presentation that Dr. Mauro just um, gave us. So uh, there might be some overlap, but as they say, repetition makes perfect. So precision medicine for breast cancer is uh, basically an approach, as Dr. Mauro mentioned, to diagnose, to treat, and sometimes to prevent even the disease. And it takes into account the genes that a person is born with and the genes or other markers that are present within the cancer cells. And with this approach, basically, they take a blood sample or a tumor tissue sample, and that is collected for analysis, and that gives us information which might be helpful in predicting the chances of a person developing a certain disease, or if they have an established diagnosis of cancer, it might guide treatment decisions moving forward. So really, cancer care is um, among the first medical specialties to apply the science of precision medicine to practice. And there are several kinds of genetic and non-genetic tests for breast cancer that are available, which can help eventually personalize the therapy decisions and make a very uh, tailored treatment plan for each patient. So some genetic tests are specific to uh, inherited risks which means that they look at your genetic makeup to determine your personal risk of developing breast cancer or other types of cancer over the course of a person's lifetime. And we've learned that the inherited risk uh, accounts for about 10% of the cases of breast cancer in total. And this same test can also be used to determine if a person would respond to a specific drug for the treatment of metastatic breast cancer. And a very famous example right now is a, a group of oral drugs called the PARB inhibitors, which are known to be active in metastatic breast cancer patients who are harboring a germline mutation in the BRCA gene. And uh, there are other newer genetic tests that are available depending on the person's family uh, cancer history. Now, the other tests or the other group of tests really check the genetic changes or variants. Sometimes they're called mutations. And this is called tumor sequencing. And basically, that is look, um, that's, that's a test that we look at the changes or the alteration in the cancer so that um, the patient's team of care can choose the best drug for the very specific type of tumor. And really, breast cancer is probably among the earliest of cancers that subdivided itself into different types based on the receptors or the markers that identify the driving forces that's allowing the cancer cells to grow and divide. And big picture type thinking, we do think of three main subtypes for breast cancer. So the most common one, which is the hormone receptor positive breast cancer, and that is a cancer that typically is positive for the female hormones, estrogen and progesterone. 
And normally we would think about using a hormonal or an uh, endocrine-based therapy for treatment. And in the metastatic setting for that type of disease, the introduction of a class of drugs called uh, cyclin D kinase inhibitors have complete, completely really um, made a rev revolution in the management of such a disease and they doubled the efficacy that we've seen previously just with hormonal therapy as a single agent. We would also check for the presence of certain mutations, which might open the door to other lines of therapies. And a famous one is um, the PIC3CA mutation, which is present in about 40% of the breast cancer patients with hormone receptor positive disease. And that might allow us to use a medication like alpalacid. Uh, another mutation that's important is the ESR1 mutation, which we typically would test for and if that is present, that usually signifies a benefit to switching the hormonal-based therapy to one of the selective estrogen receptor degraders, which are, uh, we currently have only one drug that is FDA-approved uh, called Pazlovex, but there are other oral agents in the same family of CERDs that are in development, and so far we've really been uh, seeing very promising results. Now, other than those two receptors, which are estrogen and progesterone, there's a third marker that we test for, and whether the cancer cell is producing too much of, of that protein or not gets to that subdivided into this category called the HER2-driven or HER2-positive type of breast cancer. And someone with a HER2 cancer is likely to respond to the drugs that target the, this protein. And we had the first approval for an anti-HER2 therapy um, name of trastuzumab that came out in And currently we have five or six more drugs that are geared to target the HER2 receptor. And those might be names that a lot of us have heard during their office visits, drugs like pertuzumab or neratinib or lapatinib or TDM1 and um, others. Um, those, the introduction of all of this HER2-geared um, or HER2-directed um, therapies have improved the outcome of such a disease significantly, really, and they include many different classes, as we talked about. Um, examples here, so they include monoclonal antibodies, they include tyrosine kinase inhibitors, and a third class, which is um, antibody drug conjugate, or ADC. And that's an important one also. This is a smart design type molecule that identifies a certain marker on the surface of the cancer cell, and they develop an antibody that could attach itself to that marker, and that antibody is linked to a chemotherapy with a linker, where this chemotherapy gets released inside the cancer cell, causing killing the cancer cell from within. And the whole goal is focused on attacking the cancer cells and sparing the healthy cells so that we would limit toxicity and the side effects. Now, the third subtype of breast cancer is um, thankfully um, less common subtype. It's called the triple negative breast cancer subtype. And that subtype is um, negative for the three markers, estrogen, progesterone. Um, <clears throat> this subtype, unfortunately, has higher rates of early recurrence and mortality than other types of breast cancer. And a big part of the reason why this was uh, the story for a very long time is systemically or uh, drugs-wise, we only used to think about chemotherapy. 
or cytosoxychemotherapy as a standard of care. Um, this is absolutely correct. However, we have uh, a few classes of agents, such as um, the immune checkpoint blockers, which commonly are referred to as um, immunotherapy, the PARP inhibitors that we discussed before, and the antibody drug conjugates, which have clearly shown as a benefit in this category of patients. We are starting to also understand that not all triple negative breast cancer patients have the same disease, and there's a lot of research work that is currently being done in order to subclassify that triple negative breast cancer um, disease into different molecular subtypes. And we think that this is a useful starting point on the road towards um, improving precision medicine in treatment of that disease. And the excellent authors that are working on uh, such uh, subclassification um, have shown that there is a significant difference in the response to treatment. When we give um, a triple negative patient with one subtype treatment before surgery compared to another one. And the suggestion here is uh, that classification might be of great benefit in future clinical trial design. So basically, in addition to the obvious benefit of providing patients with personalized care that is tailored to the exact features of their cancer, it is really essential to consider the risks and benefits of treating early stage uh, disease as overtreatment increases toxicity and the undesirable adverse effects. And it's no secret that unfortunately some of those side effects could linger on for quite a long time, like nerve damage from chemotherapy. And that could compromise a patient's quality of life moving forward. And that's why, really, I think precision medicine is filling a much-needed gap in clinical um, oncology. Uh, I was also asked to uh, touch on the concept of telemedicine. So the whole concept of virtual visits has gained a lot of popularity since the beginning of the pandemic, and it has been very helpful for us and our patients to continue to visit with each other, taking care of them, but in a safe way. And I do like a lot of aspects of the telemedicine visits. And many patients report their satisfaction really with how they're able to save time that is normally wasted in coming over to the cancer center and parking their car, waiting in the lobby, and so forth. Uh, besides, obviously, it does minimize the exposure to other patients and individuals in general at such a critical time. So it's always nice to be able to meet up with your healthcare team from the comfort of your home or your office. And um, it's um, always helpful to remember to write down your questions and go over them when you're having your visit with your provider. And it's also essential for us to remind ourselves this is not replacing the in-person visits because we do have some limitation to those virtual visits. We're not able to do proper exam. We're not able to connect face-to-face, -face, this is sometimes really important, but probably a hybrid model of both telemedicine and in-person visits is a successful uh, or a reasonable approach, and they both complement each other nicely. Um, also, it's a good idea to include a friend or a family member who would be your advocate during your visits and maybe take some notes or answer, ask some questions that might be helpful in you understanding the plan of care better. Uh, well, thank you so much for being patient and for being good listeners. And um, I'll uh, get this back to Dr. Mesner. Thank you. 
Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Hussein. That was also an outstanding and stellar presentation, uh, wonderful information. I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A, lots of very good information for on your on your presentation, so thank you so much. And um, our, our next speaker um, is, um, is Dr. Ibrahim Halil Sahin, and Dr. Sahin is an assistant professor, Department of Gastrointestinal Oncology, Moffitt Cancer Center. And Dr. Sahin will be addressing talking with your healthcare team about precision medicine and its benefits, the role of precision medicine in deciding treatment for colon cancer, and guidelines to prepare for telehealth, telemedicine appointments, including technology and prepared list of questions and open notes. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Sahin. Thank you so much, Dr. Messner, um, uh, for the introduction and for the kind invitation. And thank you, Dr. Sain and Dr. Mora, for um, uh, uh, this initial introduction of the precision medicine, which is, I think, very important uh, for our uh, patient's care. So what is, what is precision medicine is, is really a little bit subjective uh, for each disease type. It doesn't necessarily mean targeted treatments or it doesn't necessarily mean immunotherapy. It's just we try to, uh, is it an approach that we try to personalize our management for each single patient based on the underpinnings of the molecular uh, makeup of the cancer cells. Because we know nowadays not all colon cancer or any type of cancer is not the same. And genetic underpinnings, which means the makeup that made the cancer happen, really impacts the biology of the cancer, how it behaves, and how it may respond to treatments differently as compared to others. So it is important to bring this matter early in the course to, to, to provider uh, is really is, is a key message here. I think I always, when I see my patients um, discuss about um, molecular, uh, you know, pathways that may, you know, that may uh, have caused the cancer to happen in, in, in each disease um, of the colorectal um, cancer. So molecular profiling is a technology that um, allows us to do uh, genomic sequencing to understand what genes turned on, what genes turned off to let the, that specific type of cancer happen. And, and I think uh, with the current status of, uh, standard of care and where we are with this, um, in the science, the performing molecular profiling early in the course of disease is really key. I do discuss with all my patients, and I think for, uh, from patients' standpoint to bring this question, what precision approaches can be applied to my, uh, my care should be entertained early in the course of disease. So this is very key and, um, and, and an important question to really bring up in, in early encounter, um, early course of the disease. So what are those precision approaches that defines how we treat the colorectal cancers? Um, really good news, honestly. Now we have, starting from the first line to second line to third line, and even after uh, for advanced stage colorectal cancer especially, that we have um, novel approaches that, uh, that we can really um, uh, personalize to treatment. So for example, one of the uh, really head-spinning change within just you know one decade in colorectal cancer is immunotherapy for a uh, for subgroup of colorectal cancer called mismatch repair de uh, deficiency. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a subgroup of colon colorectal cancer, which can be really easily detected by a simple genetic testing called immunosecantry uh, early in the course and without requiring a comprehensive analysis. And this drug, is, uh, this agents, immune, immune checkpoint inhibitors, which are 
Ochreagents actually to activate immune system to attack the cancer cells can be really um, utilized in the first line. It's actually approved by FDA to be used early in the course of disease. And second line and third line, uh, we do have novel agents. For example, a BRF600E mutation, which is a uh, very well-known onc oncogene that really creates the cancer um, to, uh, to 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 be to be somewhat more aggressive as compared to others. Um, now we have drugs for it, and it is really changing the, you know, the, how the cancer uh, evolves. So now we have actually clinical trials in that space too, in addition to approved FDA-approved FDA drugs and medicines. So these, are, uh, these medicines are already in practice and are being used in, uh, in, uh, for patients who are, who, are, who are having progression of disease in the first line of treatment. And more excitingly, there are clinical trials with the using of these agents in the first line of colorectal cancer. So it is important to know this uh, information, molecular information for ahead before even really getting into second line. So I do recommend, again, getting in NGS, um, which is next generation sequencing. It's a molecular, um, you know, signature, it's, a, it's a way to understand molecular signature of the cancer uh, early in the course. So other... Uh, other approaches that really is uh, exciting in colorectal cancer is HER2 targeting, which is an age, which, which our agents have been really well defined in in the breast cancers actually quite a long time. Um, it, it, is, it is funny the medicine is taking the science is taking its time to establish this care, but this drug has been uh, approved for breast cancer for for a long time. But it it took it took a while to learn the colorectal cancer has similar molecular alteration. And now we have approaches that actually targets the HER2 amplification for colorectal cancer too, and in, for the, for patients whose cancer are refractory to chemotherapy. And more exciting, there are actually more than one line of treatment for HER2 amplification, and there are clinical trials early in the course as well. So knowing this in, another, uh, knowing this alteration early in the course really defines how we treat the colorectal cancer uh, with specific this alteration. Um, uh, for for patients with this colorectal cancer, so there are so many other alterations. Some of them are actually already um, practice changing. For example, Pol E, Pol D, relatively rare in colorectal cancer, but we do have immunotherapy. For example, works very well for Pol E and Pol D alterations, and in, and, and and they are really exciting uh, um, treatments. That in terms of how how differently uh, we are treating now than compared to in the past that we used to use such toxic agents no matter what the genetic makeup of the cancer was. So um, the, the precision medicine doesn't necessarily mean only what we have right now, but I think more relevant how we utilize the genomic information to change the practice for patients who are really going through the cancer management at this moment, for also the patient who may benefit for, this being, uh, for the novel agents that being developed. So most of the clinical trial, I can say for colorectal cancer especially, are nowadays utilizing genomic information, the molecular alteration that let the cancer happen, to design these trials and allow this, um, allow util, uh, the harness this molecular alteration to, to really more specifically treat them, and also see if we can change the course of the cancer uh, with these novel treatments. So clinical trials are really important, and precision medicine is certainly can, uh, can certainly be applied to clinical trials. And I think it's a directly part of it, to be honest. And knowing genomic information early in the course of disease also allows us as a clinicians, as, and also for the patients, 
to, to lay out a plan that may include potential clinical trials in the future, how we can really utilize all this genetic information, all these molecular biomarkers that we are keep um, uh, reiterating uh, to make the, to, to optimize the treatments to provide the best care for our ca uh, cancer patients. So how, how this, can, this precision medicine can be applied to telehealth and telemedicine? I think from my perspective, uh, how relevant it is, is actually clinical trials, because one of the challenges a clinical investigator I can tell is getting the patients, especially who are living in the suburbs, um, that doesn't have an access to tertiary cancer centers. So telehealth, especially with the COVID-19, provided an, or created an opportunity for us as a clinicians to how we can actually access to the patients who are, in living, who are living in suburbs, who are not able to commit to long driving distances, and who are not able to really have um, the opportunity to come directly to see, the, see us. And those patients who are actually thinking about the clinical trials, which may change how they approach the, the, um, to, to access the healthcare. So um, one thing I think for, for really important, because you know clinical trials, are really are really important for the management of colorectal cancer. I can confidently say that, and telehealth care really provides to for patients to really reach out tertiary or um, uh, tertiary cancer centers who are really having uh, clinical trials up and running. See what opportunities may have for them, and preparing questions, you know, for for healthcare providers at those institutions who are subspecialized to treat the cancers what opportunities I may have differently at your institution than I have here, what clinical trials based on the genetic markers of my cancer has uh, can differ differentiate my management at your institution over my place. So I think this is the very, where the most advantages, where the most opportunity for telehealth care or telemedicine has for cancer patients to get the patients who are having really certain genetic markers to be enrolled. And we or not, one of the challenges, a clinical investigator for us as well, to accessing those, those patients who may have a really very rare genomic alteration that we have potentially uh, practice changing uh, agents and enroll them. And one of them is, for example, NRG1 fusion, includes in colorectal cancer uh, patients. That's very rare, it's less than 1%. But there are certainly very exciting um, agents being developed and getting those really um, uh, studies activated, but also getting the patients, right patient population enrolled in these trials, really important. And telehealth, and I think for, is an opportunity for the patients and for providers as, uh, for, uh, as a providers for us to get this uh, opportunity and this, um, this uh, potential practice changing trials to the patients. With that, I will conclude and uh, for the respect of the time, and um, thank you so much for the opportunity, Dr. Messner, and uh, with that, I will give it back to you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Sahin. That was really outstanding, also stellar, and just a wonderful presentation, and I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well, so thank you so much. And our next uh, speaker um, is uh, Dr. Um, Allison Cushman-Volken. And Dr. Cushman Boken is Medical Director of Molecular Diagnostics Laboratory, Nebraska Medicine. Um, Medical Director, Warren G. Sanger Human Genetics Laboratory, Nebraska Medicine. Um, Fellowship Director, ACGME, Molecular Genetic Pathology Fellowship Program, Associate Professor, Department of Pathology and Microbiology, University of Nebraska Medical Center. And Dr. Um, Krishman Voken will be addressing the role of the pathologist 
open notes, asking your healthcare team and pathologists to help you understand open notes, pathology reports, and precision medicine's role in informing treatment decisions. It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Cushman Volken. Thank you very much, and um, thank you for having me today to talk a little bit about pathology and our involvement in precision medicine. So um, first, I was going to talk just a little bit about what a pathologist does in our role, mainly with regard to cancer, but we have a lot of roles within the hospital. I think most people, when they first hear a pathologist, they think, including my family and friends, that you know we, we mainly do autopsies, and that's actually a very small part of what most pathologists do. Um, pathology actually performs a lot of duties in the hospital, and there's really two different main parts to pathology. There's something called anatomic pathology, and then there's something called clinical pathology. And most pathologists are trained in both areas. Anatomic pathology refers to, um, let's say that you have a specimen or some tissue removed from you in the surgical suite. Um, that's sent to the anatomic pathologist um, to process and to review under the microscope the slides and uh, come up with a diagnosis. And so, um, of course, this is very important to cancer care and to precision medicine. Um, and so that's one aspect of pathology um, that, that many pathologists do. And I will also say that it's become, like oncology, very subspecialized. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But that has um, caused a lot of um, subspecialization in pathology, mainly due to the fact that as we've learned a lot more about cancer and about the various types of cancer, every single cancer type, generically speaking, such as breast cancer, colon cancer, um, leukemias, um, have all been really, um, I guess, compartmentalized more and more with regard to various characteristics as we've learned more within the research setting. And so that has made anatomic pathology much more subspecialized and required various pathologists to choose fellowship programs that would allow them to know, you know more about breast cancer or more about leukemias and more about colon cancer and subspecialized in looking at those various tumor types. Because as we've talked um, with some of the oncologists on the call, you know, each one of them has their own area of expertise, and, that, and that's very similar to anatomic pathology now. So anatomic pathology is one area where we look at the cells and the tumors under the microscope. And then the other main area of pathology is clinical pathology. Uh, and so clinical pathologists are the directors of the labs within the hospital. And so we have a lot of different laboratories within the hospital that are um, regulated, highly regulated. Everything we do in the hospital that involves um, patient tissue in which a result might be released into the medical record for patient management has to be done in a clinical laboratory that's overseen by a pathologist or someone who's very well trained in that area. And so I, for instance, am the director of a molecular diagnostics lab. And so one of my main roles is choosing which tests we'll do based on what's coming out in, say, the cancer world. And a lot of that testing has been already discussed today on the call. And so um, I help uh, construct what are called validation studies. We test lots of different specimens to make sure that our testing works well. Is We have lots of guidelines and regulations we have to follow. And so um, as a pathologist, I'm responsible for all of that testing to make sure that it lives up to high standards and high regulatory um, aspects. So there are a lot of different clinical laboratory um, clinical labs within the hospital. For instance, you may have heard of a transfusion medicine or blood bank. They are responsible, that pathologist is responsible for overseeing all the blood donations or all the blood transfusions within the hospital. Um, we have a microbiology lab, and so with regard to cancer care, 
of course, many cancer patients are um, immunosuppressed because they're on chemotherapy, and so it's very important that we have a really good microbiology lab to help identify potential bacterial or viral infections so that those can be treated within, you know, cancer patients. Um, we have, you know, hematopathology labs, um, and, and Dr. Pahom might talk a little bit more about that, but that has things like flow cytometry, helping diagnose leukemias and so forth. Um, and, and also, many of these clinical labs are becoming more and more involved with some of the higher, um, the higher technologies that we're seeing now, such as like CAR-T therapy and so forth. So I am a director of a molecular diagnostics lab, and a lot of that testing that we do in our lab has been discussed today. Um, another area that we have in our clinical molecular diagnostics lab is the, um, what's called the tissue typing lab or the HLA lab. And so with that lab, that lab is highly involved in bone marrow transplantation and what basically looks at certain inherited um, genomics within it, the human leukocyte antigen system, which is an antigen system important for um, bringing foreign antigens to the immune system. And so it's very important that we match, say, in a bone marrow transplant, um, a donor and a recipient so that the recipient doesn't um, reject the, the, trans or the bone marrow from the, the donor. And so that's another um, specialized clinical lab that we have here to assist with um, bone marrow transplantation, say, within um, a leukemia population. So um, anatomic and clinical pathology are very important within the hospital. Um, I, I would think the oncologists would agree that we're, we're um, very important to their practice, and we really work very, very closely. I'm in contact with my um, oncologists all the time regarding our testing that we produce in our um, molecular diagnostics lab, and we work very closely together. And so um, another area I was going to talk about is open notes. Um, and so I'm not sure how many are on the call are really familiar with that term. Um, actually, I was not really familiar with that specific term. But really, a, um, a, a new law came out within the United States saying that patients um, should immediately get access to their um, clinical reports um, through, you know, whatever portal system you're um, hospital uh, EMR, what's called electronic medical record, you use at your hospital. And so um, this happened within, I think, the last year, year and a half, that patients now should get their clinical reports um, as soon as possible um, once they're released by, say, the lab or the clinician from the electronic uh, medical record. And so the idea behind this is, of course, patients are very savvy and they have a lot more access to information. They want to be engaged with their diagnosis. They want to, um, they're able to, you know, go out and find information on, say, the internet or in the library or so forth. They want to be proactive. And, and the idea is if they're proactive and engaged and um, know right away what, what their reports are showing or what their notes are saying, that they'll ask questions, they'll be in tune right away, they'll take their medicines and so forth. And so there's a lot of positive reasons, you know, to have this uh, information readily accessible for patients immediately after it's released into the medical record. Um, I, I will say when this first came out, and, and my husband is actually an internist, he sees, he's a general internist, so he was very on board with this. Um, I, I will say when this came out, um, I would, the, the, the clinical populations, the, the physicians that were, I guess, ha had some reservations were the pathologists and the oncologists. Um, mainly because we were concerned about releasing results that could be potentially, you know, distressing to a patient. And so I, I think still, you know, there, there is a little bit of um, concern that, you know, something may get released that could cause distress. Um, I, I do think carefully about what I say in my reports because um, I want to make sure that I, I'm careful and cognizant of, you know, um, what that might do if a patient were to see that result. 
but overall, I think it's a very um, positive thing for patients, and it really does empower patients. I think one way to um, better alleviate the concerns of open notes that, that some of the clinicians have is involving pathologists more, um, potentially in the clinical setting. Right now, you know, patients don't really interact much with pathologists. Um, occasionally, a pathologist might go on uh, a, some kind of sampling of tissue and so forth, but for the most part, we don't interact with patients much. And actually, there was a study that came out in the American Journal of Clinical Pathology um, last December that suggested that 86% of pathologists actually really want to be involved more in direct patient care as opposed to kind of behind the scenes. Um, because they feel like they could assist, you know, the oncologist or any clinician with better um, helping understand the pathology reports and what it might mean. Um, pathologists showing, you know, the actual tumor cells under the microscope to the patient allows patients to better understand what their cancer looks like. And, and it kind of gives them a, a sense of, wow, I can really beat this cancer or I can really, this will empower me to really fight and, and to take my medicines and so forth. So. Um, pathologists in general feel um, pretty positive when it comes down to maybe directly um, speaking with patients and, and talking with patients and being involved more with their care. And so I think there's been some real movement in, in this, and um, we'll see down the road if it really comes to fruition. Um, but I think pathologists would be happier. They would like to be involved and be more um, attuned to patients. Um, it would give them better job satisfaction. And so um, we'll see what happens down the road, but I think that, that could be very important in the future and maybe working more as a team with the patient and the oncologist and the pathologist. So we'll see how that works. Um, lastly, I think I'm supposed to talk a little bit about um, how you know, precision medicine can inform treatment decisions. And I think um, we've already had a lot of really, really good discussion in that area. I will say, um, you know, when we, for instance, in our molecular testing, we test both, um, we can test both germline, so um, look for genetic changes in uh, inherited, in, in all your cells in your body that are inherited from, say, your parents. And we can do that both to look for, say, hereditary cancer diseases like hereditary breast and ovarian cancer, or we can also, um, and this is becoming more common, we thought it would take off more than it has, um, something called pharmacogenomics. And this is where we look at various genes within people, and everyone, uh, people can have different changes within these genes that may cause you to react to a drug differently, or maybe have worse or better, you know, worse side effects or, or lessened side effects depending on certain changes in your um, inherited DNA. And so that is an area I think down the road that will be used more in precision medicine, allowing the oncologist to better understand how a patient might respond to a chemotherapy or the side effects that might occur because of a specific, say, chemotherapy or targeted therapy. And so germline changes both for hereditary cancers but also pharmacogenetics, I think, will inform precision medicine in the future. And then, of course, um, I won't spend a lot of time talking about the somatic, which means only changes in your DNA that are in your cancer cells. Um, we spend a, a lot of time doing testing in various cancers using that technology. I mean, a lot of that's been already discussed today on the call, um, but that, of course, is a very important um, aspect to our molecular testing that we do in our clinical labs within pathology. Um, and so I think I'll, I'll stop there. Um, I'm happy to answer any more questions in the future um, after the, the final speaker. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Cushman Fulkin. That was really outstanding. Uh, Stella as well, very informative, lots of information, and just really um, really did sent, gave everyone a great picture of the role of the pathologist and, and really all that happens behind the scenes that I think people are much more aware of now. Thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Kayur Patel. 
Dr. Patel is Associate Professor, Medical Director, Molecular Diagnostics, Laboratory Director, Molecular Genetic Pathology Fellowship Program Quality Officer, Department of Hematology, Hemopathology, Hematopathology, the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center, Pathology and Laboratory Medicine, Hematopathology. And Dr. Patel is going to be addressing how a pathology report describes the molecular portrait of your cancer, understanding your pathology report, and how pathology report informs treatment decisions. It's my pleasure to, um, to introduce um, my esteemed colleague, Dr. Patel. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Messner, for that kind introduction, and everyone on the call. Uh, I have the the challenging task of following all the outstanding speakers and such a wonderful uh, area of information they already covered. So I'll try to do my best to, to explain uh, these very important topics, which are the pathology reports, how we address some of the challenges which I pointed out earlier with regards to precision oncology and uh, very specific biomarker information. So for my presentation, I will refer to a very specific aspect of precision oncology, which is uh, identifying biomarkers or determining different biomarkers. So what, uh, when you heard earlier, uh, when Dr. Mauro mentioned the BCR-ABLE fusion, or when Dr. Uh, Hussein mentioned BRCA, or when Dr. Sahin mentioned POL or HER2, these are all examples of biomarkers, what we collectively refer to as biomarkers. These are essentially different alterations in the cancer uh, cells which lead to uncontrolled growth. So when, uh, to paraphrase Dr. Mauro's uh, analogy, if we are looking to cut the wire, which wire to cut, these are the biomarkers that we are looking to target and say so which are the biomarkers which are either have been upregulated, downregulated, overactivated, underperforming, that we can now target. So what we try to do in molecular diagnostics as well as broadly in pathology is to try and understand the, the makeup of these uh, tumors so that we can identify what are the alterations which, are, which has led uh, to the, the formation of the tumors in the first place. And we do that by using a variety of different methods uh, when we talk about the portrait. And it is, uh, in a way, a portrait of the cancer cell where we look at it under the microscope and we describe what we see. Oftentimes, what we see under the microscope gives us a lot of uh, important clues as per where the tumor cells came from or, or how aggressive it is going to be. Very important indicator. We often identify the proteins which are expressed within these cells using the methodology called immunohistochemistry or uh, techniques called flow cytometry, whereby we look for different protein expression, protein signatures, and, and decide where, what diagnosis is, and, and oftentimes we can also identify some targetable information using this type of a protein-based method. We can take it a step further. Uh, we can go from the cell surface or cytoplasm into the nucleus, and we look at the DNA, which is, again, uh, harbors all the genomic information. We look for the changes in the DNA. We can also look for changes in the RNA, which is the intermediate step from a DNA to the to uh, formation of the protein and where the message has been transcribed and sent out to the cell. So we can look at all of these different uh, uh, targets within the cell to make sure that we can identify 
what is relevant for that specific tumor type, and we use that by we do that by using variety of different technologies. So on in uh, based on the specific tumor type and specific uh, clinical scenario, we use one or more of all of these different methods uh, to be able to come up with the final answer and, and identify if there are any specific mutations or alterations present. What is the relationship between them? Are they all likely coming from the same cells? Because as we know, the tumors are heterogeneous. So one, one tumor cell may not be identical uh, in, as the other tumor cells. They may both have evolved from a, a tumor cell uh, as a stem cell, but they may have diverged. They may have acquired different alterations, which will, which will allow them to grow under different circumstances and also respond differently to different treatment. So these are very important uh, considerations when we try to understand the genomic makeup or the protein makeup of the tumors so that the appropriate targeted therapies uh, can be applied. So those are the types of methods that we, as we apply in the lab. And, and as my colleague, Dr. Kushman Wukon mentioned, uh, we perform these in clinical laboratories. These are all highly regulated uh, clinical uh, laboratories where Everybody who works there is a licensed professional, much like anyone else in the hospital. So we perform under the strict regulatory guidelines and compliance to make sure that all of the uh, specimens are processed and handled in an appropriate manner, and we are able to provide the, the results which are with the highest degree of accuracy. So that's in the nutshell of how we perform and assess the tumor portrait. If you go deeper, into the, each of these different analytes, as we call them, DNA, RNA, or protein. We may be looking at a single target, or we may be looking at a multiple different targets. Uh, we may be looking at direct evaluation of a single gene, such as pole or how to, or BRCA2, uh, as, as was mentioned earlier, and see if there is any deleterious mutation that knocked the function uh, out for the gene. Or we may look at the multiple different genes and compute a signature or a score, which is sometimes often called a tumor mutation burden or TMB score, uh, whereby we can now predict if there are sufficient alterations in this tumor overall where they may benefit from immunotherapy. So we, uh, we uh, apply a variety of these different methodologies to make sure that we can identify uh, any uh, targetable information from these uh, methodologies that we perform. So this will allow us to also understand at the baseline what the tumor makeup is. And once these, uh, are, are, are once after the treatment, if the tumor genomic makeup changes, we are also able to go back and compare and show if there has been an evolution of the tumor or, or has there been any changes that can now be targeted further. All of this information uh, is provided in the pathology report. Uh, again, when you look at the pathology report, this is uh, these are all clinical documents, and these are these have to follow a certain minimum standards. But there is some flexibility with formatting, and that's where some of the issues, some of the challenges in understanding the pathology reports may come in. Because if you look at the reports from two different laboratories, they may not look identical. They may have again the minimum required piece of information and all necessary information. They may just be presented differently. Uh, are based on a variety of different factors, but they would contain information such as the taste name, what sample was tasted, when the sample was collected, uh, and so and so forth. 
They would also include interpretation, uh, which would be either a qualitative interpretation indicating yes or no or presence or absence uh, type of an information for any given biomarker, or they may give a quantitative information uh, in terms of quantitating the amount of that aberrant biomarker present, which oftentimes is useful when you are doing a serial tracking of that biomarker. The reports will also include uh, comments uh, about any potential impact on diagnosis. So the example of bcr able one fusion that Dr. Mauro mentioned, uh, it's a diagnostic biomarker for chronic myelogenous leukemia. It can also be a diagnostic biomarker for uh, Philadelphia-positive acute lymphoblastic leukemia. So depending on the clinical pathologic context, a biomarker can be diagnostic, or it can provide prognostic information. This information is also included in the pathology report uh, in terms of the clinical comment. Oftentimes, you will also see each of these biomarker uh, variant reported with regards to additional information, uh, which we call tiers or, or reporting tiers, again, based on if it's a somatic, meaning if it came from the tumor cell, uh, we use a different set of guidelines versus if it came from the germline uh, cell or germline origin, we use a different set of guidelines. So you may often see uh, the different levels of tiering uh, on each of the alterations. We often also include the impact on the function of that gene or biomarker, whether it's activating or inactivating, if it's going to lead to the treatment resistance and so forth. More and more, uh, uh, you will also see some additional information about the biomarker, which is often referring to the specific change in the biomarker. One good example is BRAF V600 imitation that is commonly seen in melanoma and it is easily targetable with targeted agents. Uh, the V600E refers to a valine uh, at position, amino acid position 600, that gets mutated. Uh, and this is a standardized way of capturing this information so that uh, it can be communicated uh, with everyone who, who is reading the report. So these types of information is, is also included, uh, and oftentimes uh, we, we refer to these as HGVS nomenclature. So the report will include standardized nomenclature. It will also include a lot more details about the, the types of assay or technology that was used. We heard earlier about the NGS or next generation sequencing panels. We, uh, the report will include whether or not it was, if it was targeted panel, meaning a limited number of genes were evaluated versus it looked broadly across the entire exome, meaning all the coding DNA or not. So variety of this technical information will be included uh, in the report. And it would be important for you to understand when you look at these reports, how, how best to identify uh, this information, which can then be downstream used for diagnostic, treatment, or prognostic purposes. With that, I'll stop here and turn it back uh, over to you, Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Patel. That was an outstanding presentation, and thank you so much. Really, uh, just really stellar and so informative. I just want to say a few words about cancer care, and then we're going to move right on to the Q&A, so please have your questions ready. Um, cancer Care is a national organization, a nonprofit. All of our services are free, and um, they're offered by oncology social workers, master's level trained. And what are those services? Many people call us on our hope line, and they speak with an oncology social worker, ask their question, and then learn about all the other services. So what are they? We do office support. 
online support groups. We do also offer these workshops and publications. We do also have a pet assistance program for people who have a cat or dog and need assistance with caring for that, their, their um, treasured animal. Um, and uh, we also offer these um, wellness circles that are support groups that many people find very, very helpful. They're, they're really um, educational and support workshops. Now, with that being said, we're going to move right on now, and I'm going to ask Grace to bring all of our speakers on board, and we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. Uh, and uh, Grace, if you could explain to the audience how to queue up for questions, we'll let the questions begin. Absolutely. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchstone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking ask a question. So, um, Dr. Morrow, if you could start with this one. Can, should all patients receive precision medicine? Great question. I think uh, we strive to be able to characterize most cases as best as possible. You know, it, it, it's true that two people can have exactly the same answer but have slightly different targets or different um, treatments. Well, I would encourage everyone to ask um, about um, targeted treatments or characterize tumor uh, um, or their cancer as best they can. Um, and make sure you have a good answer. Um, these are not necessarily um, cost prohibitive or uh, tests that are not widely available, although sometimes they do be arranged and uh, there may sometimes be a slight delay in treatment. That's also an important consideration, but it's certainly something we strive for. Excellent. Thank you. And um, for Dr. Hussein, is tumor profiling available for all cancers? Yeah, so uh, tumor profiling, so basically it's the same concept of sequencing a tumor and looking for any targets that could be um, could be um, addressed by the the addition of some of the targeted agents and solid tumors and liquid tumors are um, having the potential of having that uh, test done and providing the information to the the treating oncologist or hematologist in order to make the right decision. So uh, yes, it is. Thank you. Thank you very much. And the next question for Dr. Sahin. Um, what are some of the challenges facing precision medicine? Yes, thank you so much. And this is a highly relevant question. So one of the things that precision medicine is having is, 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 is the real-life challenge that we see in our, um, in our daily life. For example, just in a simple case that we are talking about tumor profiling or uh, performing next-generation sequencing, it takes time. Um, and um, getting these tissue samples and doing analysis sometime, especially if this is a send-out test. Uh, and for most of the patients who are getting their care community, this is the case. It takes about five weeks to get the results in. And sometimes even simple testing that we call them simple and easy to do turnaround time uh, with a reasonable turnaround time, such as immunostic chemistry, um, is, is not available in community. And um, from my experience for colorectal cancer, for example, and also this is seen in the clinical trials, getting this um, test timely manner, having the results in the first line especially may be a challenge. And it is real life challenge. And I see the patients who may have an opportunity to get the treatment for immunotherapy uh, may start with chemotherapy because they, the genetic testing is not available. 
That's the first challenge of this precision, precision medicine at this time. But there are so many other things that we have to acknowledge, the weakness of the pre precision medicine. We are at this time performing mostly uh, the, uh, DNA uh, sequencing, but it, the cancer biology is quite dynamic and there is a multidimensional fact of how the cancer biology is affected from the DNA to the transcriptomic RNA, which is the genes expressed, and the protein level. And we don't know really still yet a lot about the, the RNA level and protein level, how this precision medicine can be really used, uh, applied by, based on this pro, uh, proteomics, which means protein signature of the cancer cells. So what we know is still limited, and I think there's still opportunity, and uh, this will remain as a challenge of the biology that uh, we'll have to face, um, um, and hopefully the future holds promise uh, to, be to make it better and more available for all patients. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Sahin. And um, this will be the last question. I'm going to ask this question for, for Dr. Uh, Krishman Vokun and for Dr. Patel. Um, this is a question I think a lot of patients have. Can I request to speak to my pathologist? Dr. Krishman Vokal, do you want to go first and then Dr. Patel? That's a great question. Um, of course, you are, you are able to request, I think, to speak with a pathologist. I, I, don't, I think one of the main concerns for pathologists in speaking directly to patients is, is that they're going to say something that might contradict or confuse um, the situation when the oncologist the treating oncologist isn't present, and so pathologists are always a little hesitant to do so um, when they, you know, directly to the patient because it's not involving your primary care physician or your primary oncologist. So um, I think many pathologists would be more than willing to speak with patients directly about, say, their gen genetic report on their cancer. I know I would be, but I think I would prefer to do it personally in the in the presence of the oncologist so that we as a team could to discuss the um, findings together. And I don't know if Dr. Patel has same or different feelings or other thoughts on that. Oh, thank you. And Dr. Patel, your thoughts? Yeah, I agree uh, with Dr. Kushman Wilkins comment. I mean, as pathologists uh, and, and as medical doctors, we are very much willing to be part of this discussion. And as a matter of fact, we are uh, active participants in what we call tumor boards, where we do discuss these alterations and matching therapies. But traditionally, the uh, dynamics or in terms of discussion with the patients and the families has been limited to the oncologist uh, uh, because of the appropriate framework. But as pathologists, we'll be very much willing to discuss the technical aspect of the testing or the biomarker findings and so forth. Um, and I agree with Dr. Krishman's comment about any treatment-related decisions, uh, they do need to be sort of uh, taken uh, in consideration with the clinical colleagues to avoid any type of uh, confusion uh, on, on either end. But we are very much willing to, to discuss uh, uh, with the patients and the families, and we do many times. Thank you. That sounds excellent. And, and would it work then well as a, could this be like a, a telehealth telemedicine visit in which the pathologist and the oncologist would talk ahead of time and then they would then have that visit with the patient so that um, there would be that uh, cons consistency that you're describing um, that's important. It, would that, do you think that would work? Is that something people could ask for as well? Uh, yes, I, I think probably the, the best way to do that would be to contact or discuss with your oncologist um, first mm -hmm. that you would like to mm -hmm. do this, and it would be the oncologist mm -hmm. discussing with the pathologist a good time 
for um, everyone to get together in a room and look at the slides or review the report or what have you. Excellent. This has been a phenomenal call. I have to say this, this program today has really, um, I have to say, topped all um, a lot of our programs. It's just been wonderful. All the programs are wonderful, but this one has been particularly been uh, outstanding. Um, and we do have many more questions in queue. And we, as you know, we had a lot of speakers with tremendous expertise on the program. We have run over a bit, and um, I, this isn't this is an hour program, so we have run over a bit. But I did want to be sure that we covered as much as we could with all of this expertise in the in the room today. Um, however, I know there are many more of you who have questions yet to ask, and so I want to thank our speakers. I want to thank our participants for making this such a special call today. Um, it's a call that we'd like to do again, obviously. Uh, and um, and I think there's a great need for this uh, discussion. Um, and I think um, so. For those of you, so I want to remark about we would, we could go on for another hour or so because there are so many many people with questions yet to have been asked on this call today. So I just want to um, review a few things. First of all, for those of you who asked a question, for those of you who have a question yet to ask or are thinking of a question, please take all the information you learned today and take it back to your treating healthcare team. I think that is true that, um, as our pathologists have said, that your oncologist, of course, knows you the best, and they know all about, your, about you, and they can then address your questions. So see your questions today as a role play for discussing your questions with your oncologist. That's really very important. Um, and so, um, and, and one thing I hope you did learn today is that all your questions are amazing, and they um, are wonderful questions, and indeed, um, and keep asking your questions of your treating healthcare team until you get the answers that you understand. That's really important too. This is complicated sometimes for people without a science background to understand. So to some extent, it helps to really speak to your treating uh, healthcare team. Also, I would not want anyone to feel that you're alone in coping with cancer, with any type of cancer, whether it be a solid tumor or hematologic cancer. We want you to now know that you're part of a community of support. I will be giving you, we'll be sending you a survey monkey tomorrow, and in that there'll be um, all kinds of links to resources that you can access, that are credible resources that you can access information from um, about today's call. Um, also, um, you'll also be getting uh, a link to the Cancer Care Hopeline and, and website. And also for international participants, um, our our website also has information that you can ac access as well. So I just want everyone to feel that, I um, mean, you can pose a question on our website and our, and our staff will help you if you're living internationally with identifying resources in your, in your region and area. So with that being said, I, again, I want you to all know that there, you, there are a lot of organizations out there to help you and we are one of them to help. We can start with, uh, with with us, but we will give you a listing of some other organizations as well. Again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you a very fine day. Thank you all for your being on the call today. Thank you, doctors. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Have a great day, everyone.